You want me to serve the woman who murdered my king, who butchered my men, who crippled my son? I want you to serve the realm. Tell the queen you will confess your vile treason. Tell your son to lay down his sword and proclaim Joffrey as the true heir. Hello again, and welcome to another episode of, Ed, of History of Westeros podcast, a podcast dedicated to the television show Game of Thrones, as well as the books by George R. R. Martin, A Song of Ice and Fire. I'm just one of your hosts. I'm Steve, a.k.a. the Friggin' Italian, here in Los Angeles. And with me always is my trusty cohort. Hey, Steve, is he sitting here in Atlanta? I got a Shay on my left, and we are excited. We have a very heavily researched episode today. It's the, probably the one we put the most... Uh, time into ahead ahead of uh, the episode, and we're it's, it's of course necessary with this topic. We're talking about Varys and Illyrio, and uh, you don't really get more enigmatic than those guys. So uh, of course that uh, required us to be very thorough, uh, and we are very happy with the results. So I hope you guys would be too. We're going to start awesome. off. We're going to start off with the very important scene. Uh, it's, it's it's the scene where in the show you will recognize. Illyrio and Varys walking uh, in the dungeons, and Arya overhears them. In the book, it's it's similar, except that uh, given that we can't see them, it, we're 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 going on Arya's descriptions, so it's not necessarily clear right away. But George has clarified that it's definitely those two, or there's no doubt it's Varys and Illyrio having a conversation. And from that one conversation, we can glean an awful lot about what they're after, what their motives are. Um, and it's, of course, unlike some of the other houses, they're, they're moving very sneakily. So, uh, we, it's a very important scene. We're going to come back to it a lot, in fact, uh, throughout this episode. And it's interesting. I like to point out how George frequently gives us the answer before he gives us the question. Or he unmasks the villain before we know there's a masked villain. It, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's something he does very often. And I think this is a good example of it. You hardly even know who Varys and Illyrio are when you hear this, when you see this scene happen. But it's huge. Uh, I highly encourage you all to, to go back and read that chapter. It's Arya's third chapter in Game of Thrones. Um, it, it, so it, just to see, it, it, if you haven't reread the series at all, it's a really amazing scene. And you realize just how much is going on. And remember, when you're reading that, that you only hear a small portion of their conversation. That's great. I, it's great because uh, at this point, this is when we actually begin to connect these two individuals, and realize that Varys is likely uh, a supporter of Viserys and Daenerys, or at least a secret Targaryen loyalist, uh, or something of that sort. And uh, Illyrio is his financial backer in this. And we actually hear Varys actually ask for 50 new birds and some gold. And, of course, the birds he would use for spying, the gold is most likely for these little birds to use and for him to use as bribes. And the things they discuss mostly revolve around the big players and what they're doing. Varys is actually most concerned about Ned Stark because of his rigidity and his honor and the fact that he's not one to play along. He's not a, he's not a guy that plays along as far as politics goes. Um, he, but they, they can't, however, assassinate him. Illyria suggests assassinating Ned. Unfortunately, that will not accomplish what they're trying to accomplish, which is... They don't want, uh, they want instability in the realm. They want to set things up so that uh, Daenerys or Viserys can come in and maybe save the day or 
at least they'll be able to invade a weakened kingdom. Of course, bringing the Dothraki over is going to do that. So, but the problem with, with assassinating Ned is that it would cause the same problem that they're trying to avoid, which is instability coming too soon. In other words, they, they need it, things to be unstable, unstable, but they can't have it happening before they're ready. So, that's a problem. They can't kill Ned too soon. So that's a, it remains a dilemma. Absolutely. This is also when you kind of learn that Varys, he's quite concerned about Lysa Aaron and uh, possibly Stannis fleeing beyond his reach while gathering swords about him. And uh, also he's concerned about Loras Tyrell. Um, he is currently urging his father to wed Mar Marjorie to court. So in other words, they're trying to scheme to set Cersei aside and have Robert marry into the Tyrell family, which, of course, that's not going to help things become more unstable. That's going to create make more stability, which is exactly what Varys and Lyra mm -hmm. don't want. And Littlefinger, he simply doesn't know what Littlefinger is after, what he's trying to do. He says so. Something along the lines of, gods alone know what Littlefinger is up to. So that, <laughs> which is impressive, by the way. you got to think that Varys seems to know everything, and he doesn't have any idea what Littlefinger's up to. So, <laughs> just a little uh, yeah. feather in yeah, Littlefinger. Um, so let's, we're going to go into a bit of background on Illyrio and Varys while we constantly refer back to this scene as a source of what we know about those two. Illyrio, of course, is introduced as we actually first see him with Daenerys and Viserys as they're preparing for Daenerys' wedding to Khal Drogo. He is a huge man, so fat that he needs slaves to stand up. But ironically, he's very light on his feet. So there's more to him than just being a simple fat guy. It kind of makes it sound like he might something in his past. Maria uh, says he, he's lying on his feet like a water dancer. Right, she uses that specifically with his accent, uh, being he's, he's from the East. So maybe he had some training on him. He has a forked yellow beard that he oils to the point where it's shiny like gold. And that's very distinct. He has at least one ring on each finger, and we're not talking you know, a little, little silver. We're talking about, like, valuable gemstones. So this guy is not only really wealthy, but he shows how wealthy he is in the way he dresses. And he, as I'm sure we all know, he's the Magister of Pentos, and maybe you were a little bit unsure of what a Magister was, and, well, you shouldn't, because that's not really very clear. Um, magister sounds like a fancy title, and throughout history, it was one of the highest commoner titles. It means master in Latin, and it's also a term for a teacher, and so uh, clearly though a magister throughout history is not exactly what we're seeing here, because clearly a little bit more prestigious, with a little bit more real duty than we see throughout history, typically uh, like a prince maybe would have some magisters like his uh, magister of offices who would, do, who would do some administrative duties, but it's certainly not a council of magisters that are strong, wealthy, you know, citizens, that is something different there. Uh, historically, you know, they have a specialty. We, we don't know uh, what Illyrio's specialty might be. Cheese, uh, maybe? <laughs> yeah, something like that. Maybe it's trade, you know, something like that. But uh, this, this title, though, a magister, gives Illyrio a certain authority because he can accept bribes and uh, he, yeah. He's, it, it gives him... 
it puts him in an interesting position. A guy who's already wealthy, we get the impression that he was wealthy far before he became a magister. So quite possibly his wealth kind of helped him work his way in there. A lot of, you know, like politics in the real world is usually a rich man's game. So Illyrio perhaps gained respectability through his wealth and then used that to put himself in a position of power. Now this is where it gets really interesting. This is where it, it, it seems it's sort of like a, a mafia-type situation where Illyrio is in a legitimate position. He has a legitimate operation that's in the front, but behind that he can mask all sorts of illegal activities and use his, his very outward position, very visible position, to make connections in the underworld. If, he, if a man comes to him who is trying to open a brothel, for example, he could connect that guy to illegal slave trade, which clearly he's involved with. We've seen at the wedding and bar, uh, rather Daenerys and other people mentioned that he clearly has slaves even though slavery is illegal in Pentos. So, or another example, let's say someone comes to him uh, we know we know Illyria's in the mining business. Let's say Illyria, someone comes to him saying they want to build a mine on this track. They want to develop it. And they need maybe permission from the city authority. Well, because Illyrio is both good at gathering information, he may know more about this mine than even the man trying to develop it is. Or he may realize that this man is trying to understate the value of this mine in order to lessen the fees he's going to have to pay. Well, Illyrio, knowing so many things, having this information gathering network, he's going to know that this guy's trying to pull a fast one, and there's actually this copper mine, for example, actually is a gold mine, or actually has gold. And so Illyrio is able to very precisely uh, extort bribes from these people in order to get maximum value and, and say, cause, because he has so much information. Or, if he wants to be even shadier, he could do something like plant evidence of gold in this mine and then get someone else to pay an inflated price for it. And then, of course, he's a high authority position, so it's hard to you know, take revenge on him. He's a magister. He's an official authority, so the, uh, the backing of the city is at least partly behind it. So that's a very interesting thing, and it shows that Illyrio is very ambitious and very powerful. Um, and, of course, you know, the, the ability to plant false information and, and benefit from it or to learn information, this, a lot of that comes from Bari's uh, most likely, and things that Bari set up for him, and they worked on together, perhaps in the past. Some things that we don't have full information on, but we can we can guess at pretty accurately. Yeah, in a in, in a real world perspective, uh, it, it's uh, it's quite similar to how the mafia or uh, maybe some other large criminal organization would work. You know, you'd have a, a front of a, of a legitimate business. And but you're using it really to mask the more profitable illegal business in the background. And a perfect example of that is if you ever seen the movie Goodfellas or something like, uh, uh, oh, what was that movie called? Anyway, doesn't matter. Um, Goodfellas is a good reference because they had the car shop in the front, and in the back they were sitting there like you know mining these stolen uh, parking meters, and they, <laughs> they planned the uh, Lufthansa heist there. So I mean it, it's. It's a pretty big deal. Um, it's also kind of hinted at that, you know, they're hinted as a key component of a power structure in Pentos. I would think of them, as you said before, you know, they are powerful because they're rich, not because they're actually in the government. So I'm thinking of them as, like, really powerful lobbyists in today's climate. Um, like, you know, say you've got, I don't know, Ford Motor Company, is really lobbying hard against these key senators to vote this way on a oil tax just to keep things rolling profitably through them. 
Um, so yeah, so it's hinted quite heavily that you know, the magisters really do a lot of ruling in the background of things. And it seems you know, that Illyrio probably bought his way into office with his riches. And, and, a, and a successful or aspiring prince likely needs that kind of support of at least one magister. Um, and we have no idea how many there are. There could be as little as five to as many as 50. Probably not that much, but, you know, anything's possible. So, yeah, they, they, they act as more like benefactors and contributors and, and lobbyists, if, if you will. Prince, on the other hand, that needs their support does not have nearly as uh, relaxed of a life as they do. They they have some really harsh rules and regulations going on in Pendas. If you hadn't heard, they they split their princes, the ruling princes' throat. If they lose a war, if there's a famine or a plague, you know, I, who knows how minor it could really be? The grain crop is a little light, split his throat. Uh, the prince has to ritually deflower the maiden of the field and the maid of the, uh, the sea. So that's a little interesting too. Uh, which which it, it's that I like that because it, it shows you that the it seems like the nobility have less power in Pentos than they do in other places. I mean, can you imagine the throne, the King Robert having his throat slit if, if you know a, a crop failed? <laughs> I mean, that's a totally different situation. It's the nobility have less power in the throat, so you really feel like. Illyrio, with that kind of the overtones there, people like Illyrio have even more power than than it may seem. So, uh, but more about Illyrio, he he, he speaks Dothraki fluently. Apparently, he speaks probably speaks some other languages. Um, there seem to be a lot of languages in the free cities, and he, him being a trader, it'd be very useful to be able to speak a lot of languages in order to facilitate trade. It's a kind of a common uh, thing we see both in history, in our own history, and in, in fantasy. Uh, guys who were in high positions of uh, as merchants typically are uh, well educated in far forms of communication. Mm -hmm. um, let's talk about how wealthy he is. We've been we've been harping on that. Well, we give some examples besides the rings and his his some of the other factors. The fact that he's backing Varus clearly. Um, he deals in uh, dragon bone and spices and gems, and we're told quote less savory things. We yeah, like slaves. Yeah, yeah, like, <laughs> like slaves exactly. Um, and he, of course, we, we talked about the rings and how it, they're extremely valuable. It's probably enough to live off of for years, I guess. Um, he has a walled manse. We don't know a lot about it. It's not like a castle. It, it wouldn't, certainly couldn't stand any kind of siege. But, you know, it's very safe at the same time. You're not going to be worried about, like, a, a mob of citizens uh, coming and attacking him either. He's got or looters. Right, or looters, exactly. Twelve-foot walls with spikes. And he has some uh, unsullied guards as well, um, which are of course very loyal and you know they're they're very deadly as well. Can we, can we have, sorry, before we go on, can, can, uh, for the people who don't know, because um, they don't really just unsullied. Um, the unsullied are extremely dedicated, loyal soldiers. They're trained pretty much from birth to be nothing but stalwart fighters. And they're legendary throughout the realm, and that's pretty much, I think, enough said on that subject because uh, we're going to well, definitely go into the that here. The trailer, if you haven't seen it yet, has some pretty spectacular shots of troops there, and those are unsullied troops. Right. Yes. So that's a good idea. Um, so this is what guards Illyria's man. He doesn't have a whole army of them, but he has, he has some sort of force of them. Uh, he owns plantations. 
and mines and other properties, probably farms and things like that. And he, of course, he gives away these dragon eggs to, to Daenerys, which we'll get in, we'll get into that a little more later. But apparently, those are really valuable, so we're going to talk about that a little more later. But that's uh, that's a pretty big one as far as showing off how wealthy he is. He also owns a menagerie that includes a panther. I mean, this guy owns it's like he owns a zoo. So he's really rich. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, one thing we thought was interesting would be to kind of draw a distinction between. His type of wealth and the wealth of, say, House Lannister, who's considered, you know, the wealthiest in the Seven Kingdoms. So, House Lannister, for instance, uh, has all, they have to support their family. They have to distribute wealth. They have, you know, they have to set up different family members, maybe with a little plot of land and pay for their education, play for them to be outfitted. They, they, house Lannister is a house, uh, where Illyrio Mopatis is a man. He has, you know, he has no family expenses with that regard. You know, he takes in Danny and and, and Viserys, and it's like, eh, if I had kids, it, it would cost him, you know, money for that too. Uh, then you see that like House Lannister just has expenses. They have to take care of their land. They have to like, you know, if someone comes in for help, and they have to pay for their wall to be fixed sometimes and stuff like that. Whereas Illyrio just has income. He, his expenses are solely. His, his, his manse and his own immediate holdings, really. He doesn't have to worry about a whole a whole region of people. Yeah, I mean, think about how expensive it is to maintain an army. you got to have helmets, swords, shields, spears, stirrups, saddles, horses, food. It's really expensive. <laughs> of course, House Lannister is not going to slack on that. They're no. going to keep their, you know, keep the money flowing to keep their power. Illyrio well, has, you know, a small force of guardsmen, but that's such a tiny cost compared to that. And then you have, say, the Lannisters have to pay their taxes to the king. Illyrio, mm -hmm. though, does have to bribe Dothraki. Yeah, you know, he has to, you know, maybe bribe some other nobles. He has other expenses in that regard. Still, I don't think anything close to the Lannister taxes. And uh, the Lannisters, though, are very old, old wealth, obviously. And Lyrum of Hatch is new, new rich. He's, he's, his riches are very new. Self-made so, man. But you, I, yeah. I think you can say that his riches are slightly more impressive in my eyes because it's all you know, self-made man and all that. I would agree with that. But, uh, yeah. Yeah? Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, uh, the thing is, he's... He's very rich. There is no question about that. He's got a huge mass and everything. He doesn't seem to be quite as rich as, say, someone as Zaro Zohan Doxos, who we saw in season two. Um, but Danny um, actually noted that Illyria's mass was much, much larger and more lavish. Um, but it's actually dwarfed by Zaro Zohan's palace, um, and according to the side, anyways. Now, it should be noted, though, that all this time that she's been gone from Pentos, she actually misses and longs for being back at Illyria's palace, because that's pretty much where she grew up. Yeah, other than the house with the red door, which she misses as well, but she yeah. can't really, that was from her very distant childhood. She spent such a long time growing up with Illyrio and in his mansion that she started to think of it as home. Of course, kind of scary going out, going from that to a colossar. <laughs> <laughs> So let's talk a little more about uh, things that come directly from the, the storyline. We, we're introduced to, of course, Illyrio as he's sort of coaching uh, Viserys and Daenerys on some things and are helping to arrange his marriage. So maybe at the beginning, you learn that Viserys very quickly comes off as an idiot. He comes off as a little bit insane and kind of a lunatic. 
and you quickly, you know, you learn pretty quickly that your initial impression was was maybe a bit less than it should be. The guy is quite insane. Uh, so maybe at first you might think Illyrio is, what is he? He might be an idiot too. Why is he backing this guy? Uh, but pretty quickly you, you know, because maybe he's a loyalist or something. Maybe he's really into the Targaryens. But that doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense. He's Illyrio is from Pentos. He's not from Westeros. He doesn't have any family that we know of. So how could he be a Targaryen? That isn't. Where is that connection? So it doesn't really seem to make sense. So it's probably something else. Yeah, it's pretty possible. It's pretty likely that he has a, some sort of hidden agenda, ulterior motive kind of thing, uh, which Danny, even at the age of thirteen, suspects. Uh, while Viserys, you know, on one hand, believes that you know, okay, if I become king, he wants to be rewarded and be you know, he'll be close with the king of Westeros and have, you know, access to these, you know, newfound riches and whatnot. Um, thing is, yeah, we shouldn't really be trusting much of anything Viserys' opinion. <laughs> um, uh, Danny also happens to notice Illyria smiling quite shyly, or slightly, at uh, Viserys, uh, whenever Viserys goes off and how he's, he always, you know, swears off that I'm going to kill Robert and Jamie Lannister myself. And, uh, of course, you know, Hilaria uh, is like, yeah, okay, sure you are, okay, whatever. And uh, he handles it quite well, and Viserys is completely in the dark, so he just kind of humors him a little bit, and uh, he lets some of the more outlandish statements, you know, just kind of, okay, yeah, yeah, okay, good boy. It's actually quite hilarious. He, he does threaten he, to kill Robert personally. He threatens to kill Jamie Lannister personally. And he threatens to kill Khal Drogo. He threatens all these people, and he's actually never killed anyone himself. And, of course, we know he dies having never killed anyone. So, like, he's a lame duck. He's really... He has real troubles with reality. Like, how are you going to kill them? What? You couldn't kill us! Illyrio does seem to have a thing for fair-haired, blue-eyed women. It's kind of it's, it's understated, and in the show, it's it's pretty impossible. There's, there's no evidence of it really because it's, it's one of those small things that they just don't have time to include. But it, it makes you wonder maybe Illyrio thought about keeping Daenerys for himself. If this is the kind of girl he's like really into, like. But he's also into profit, so. Yeah, he even he makes a few mentions of the Lord of Light. Which is maybe something we shouldn't read too much into. I mean, he says, The Lord of Light would hold our city walls against a million Dothraki, or so the Red Priest promised. So, uh, that's probably irrelevant, because Valorism is the dominant religion of Pentos, and you don't just eschew the, the dominant religion of your region if you value people respecting you, and it's... In a, in a religion-dominant culture, you don't do that. And now this was in reference to Viserys and, uh, rather, to Viserys pointing out that he thought it was weak that the magisters of Pentos continued to bribe the Dothraki rather than fight them. And, of course, according to the Red Priest, they, they would, they'd be able to fight the Dothraki, but Illyrio and others are like, oh, we don't want to tempt that. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Sully. Yeah, yeah. There's also a red priest at uh, Danny's wedding. A uh, red priest fatter than Illyria. Yeah, which is, wow, how? <laughs> wow. <laughs> so in the show, he is actually a huge It's true, in the show, yeah, he's not a fat guy. He's just kind of a big guy. He's, yeah. he's a big guy, but not. He's enormous as they describe him. He doesn't have the golden beard or either. Yeah. He's quite different. Yeah. But that's okay. We'll, we'll, mm -hmm. you know, I don't suppose that's super important. Um, but so it becomes pretty clear 
that Var, especially Varg, but also Illyrio, they're very good at character judgment. They're this is not they're not fooled by the series. They're not going along. They're not idiots. Uh, they've got something else in mind. And as we go through this episode, we'll try to illuminate what that might be. Um, and hopefully we'll shed some light on some things that you guys didn't notice. Now let's move on to Varys. Yes, Varys. Um, and, uh, th- th- we'll, we have a lot more information on Varys than we did on Illyria, so this one's going to take a little bit longer, but you know, I, I hope you enjoy it. Um, he's basically introduced you know, to us as the eunuch. And he's the Master of Whispers, is his official title in the court. Um, he's part of the small council. Um, immediately we're told, quite subtly, that he served both the Mad King Ares and Robert, which is kind of curious because of the fact that you know, these two kings are diametrically opposite of each other. So this should stick out as kind of peculiar, as not many people got to do that. I think... Uh, uh, Aaron was the only other one, perhaps, that actually served with both. Yeah, maybe. I think Littlefinger might have survived. Oh, yeah, right. Littlefinger, no, Littlefinger wasn't on the previous race. Aaron brought him in. Yeah, Meister Pycelle would have been the other one. Okay, yeah, 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 Pycelle did too. Yeah, but Pycelle, like, the Maesters are supposedly, sir. you know, that's that's more of an established thing with them. Um, I guess technically Sir Barristan was pardoned, but that's also a different scenario. I don't, we don't even know that Barristan was on the small council back then. So, But the first detail, anyway, the first detail we get about Varys, it's interesting to point out how he was introduced. That's an important factor in the series, is showing the, how the character is introduced and the initial uh, detail that George gives us to kind of color how he wants us to think about that character. It's also important to note which character we see these characters through, because as always, there's a filter. When you see Varys through, say, Catelyn in the brothel scene, she starts thinking of him of, she's, he's so impressive with his knowledge gathering that she actually starts thinking of him as a magic user of some kind. It's like, wow, he really is a sorcerer or an enchanter. And because this is a fantasy series, and it's pretty early on, you actually, as a reader, are, you know, you're not thinking, oh, that's just silly, he's not a sorcerer. I mean, why not? He could be one. This is a fantasy series. Quickly, you know, we learn that, you know, despite his nickname, the spider... And we learn that he's spying on Sir Jorah, or spy, rather using Sir Jorah to spy on Danny and Viserys. And uh, he's knowing all these things he shouldn't know. Like he knows about the dagger. We're, using, we're talking about the brothel scene here with Catelyn and Littlefinger. He knows about the dagger. He knows about uh, Bran's fall, and he doesn't. And he knows that she's there, which is also <laughs> sneaky information. You know, how did Varys even know that Catelyn was in the city? And he knew right away too. He knew pretty much the moment you got there, which which indicates that Barthes spies at the gates, which I think that's a pretty sensible place to be (laughs) keeping spies, seeing who's going in and out of the city. So, but going back to the notion of Barthes being a magic user, it's interesting to note how we start off as thinking of all these people think of him as such. And then, after this one conversation with Tyrion in Clash of Kings, we find out that, unless he's lying, he is quite anti-magic. He hates people who who use magic. And... You know, it's, I think that's just a, a really interesting tidbit that we were led down this one path and then it kind of shifts on us. Yeah, this could quite be, easily be a lie. Um, so our perception of him, is, as you know, he goes from our perception of saying, okay, is he possibly a magician, sorcerer, enchanter, or whatever, you know, now suddenly he's telling us that, oh, I despise magic and people who use it. Thank you. Uh, as an aside, um, when we're, we're talking about that scene with Littlefinger and, and you know, at brothel, 
um, you know, Vari stands there and says nothing while Littlefinger lies about the dagger. And you know that Vari knows that's a lie. There's no way he doesn't know that it's a lie. And uh, George narrates her, her point of view in a way that shows that Varys was watching her while Littlefinger was speaking the words that he wanted to see maybe is she a little bit more, uh, more, uh, you know, perce uh, perceptful of this. Uh, maybe he wanted to judge to see if she thought it was a lie, yeah, like, judging her reaction. Maybe, you know. maybe he'd get a little more respect for her. She was like, that's not true. And, you know, but obviously she, she believed him. Yeah. Easily. <laughs> she didn't question it really at all. She was just like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's probably because uh, he was a childhood friend of hers anyway, so she kind of yeah. trusts him a little, probably too much. Yeah. Uh, it also should be noted that uh, Varys is the one who actually arranged this meeting in the first place. Um, and he was the one who actually told Littlefinger that Cat arrived in King's Landing. Uh, and that's kind of an important detail um, because of, you know, all those little birds running around. He, he found out pretty much immediately. So you think about that, like Varys... On one hand, he tells Illyria he has no idea what Littlefinger's up to, and he's, you know, throwing, causing chaos. On the other hand, he sets this whole thing up. He set up this meeting between Catelyn and Littlefinger, and he knew about the dagger. So, uh, what's he up to there? I don't know. But let's talk about him in a couple different aspects. He, of course, is plump, bald, effeminate. He's got his soft white hands, powdered, you know, powdered face, wears silk, soft shoes. He walks around quietly. There's a lot of perfume. He's... he's very, very unthreatening. Yeah, I mean, and it's kind of interesting about that soft shoes because we go back to that scene we were discussing earlier with Arya uh, viewing Illyria and uh, and Varys uh, talking. Uh, Arya actually noted that even wearing heavy boots, Varys glides soundlessly over the ground. That's a quote from the book. He actually just glides soundlessly. So you kind of have to wonder. You know, did he receive some of that water dancing training, or at least to some degree, uh, some sort of specialized training to do that? Because, I mean, you know, he's walking over hard cobblestone and heavy boots, not making a sound. My guess would be that his background is a thief. We learn um, that he had a thief background, so if he's walking around quietly, true. That that's true. It's still very impressive. Um, he, he also has a habit of touching people. It's something that comes up a lot in conversation. You're noticing in the book, and then the show as well, I'm not sure how much they put emphasize this, but he's, he's constantly putting his hand on people's sleeves and his arm, and, or, or putting his arm on... It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a socialization thing, it's a psychology thing. When you engage people physically, it, it brings you closer together. It's a psychological, it's a, it's a subconscious thing that happens in the back of our minds. And it's... It's, it's, it's kind of a basic aspect of human psychology, rather. In other words, it's, it's part of his method to make him seem unthreatened. Uh, part of what we were talking about with his the, how Ares, he, sur he survived going from Ares to Robert, this is part of it. He's, he's unthreatened. Um, he also consider how ostentatious his dress is and how just how extreme he looks with the shaved head and the powder and all that stuff we mentioned. And then consider him switching to, say, a jailer when he visits Ned. The more outlandish he looks, the more sneaky the disguise becomes. If he's already, if he starts off as a normal-looking man and he switches to uh, sneakier, it's less of a change. When he goes from this like silk, silk-wearing, colorful, bald guy to something, it's just more of a change. So it's just, that's you know, just more sneaky. So I think that's part of why he makes himself so visible, so that when he's hidden, you know, he's even more hidden. 
Yeah, I kind of wonder if uh, he's actually disguised when he's actually running around being "quote unquote" varies at court. Right. Yeah. But, uh, absolutely. Like this isn't. There's no reason to suspect that this is his normal. That he could quite possibly. Not that he chooses to look like this out of like pleasure for how he looks or anything. Yeah. Guys. It's interesting too because it's, it's something that we'll bring up later in reference to his motives. He has nothing. He doesn't have wealth in his own rooms, like his own apartments. The King's Landing. He is. They're very sparkly. So despite the fact that he dresses really nicely, that it, it seems like a bit of an act because he's not like that in private. So, um, but also, and this also enhances his all this, you know, flair enhances his greatest skill, perhaps his greatest skill. He's good at so many things, and that's his mummer, uh, which we know that he grew up in a mummer's troop, so we know that he's really good at this. He's good at changing his voice, his walk, his posture. His smell, his hair, his beard, all these things. He's good. You name it, he can change it, and he's really good at it. So, I mean, remember what happens when he comes to see Ned in the jail. Yeah, I know. It really wouldn't be wrong to call him quite the master of the skies. Yeah. And, I mean, it's, it's so, when he, like, for instance, when he meets Ned, Ned's like, wow, you know, I took him a minute there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah Ned, Ned's quite uh, quite shocked and surprised and taken aback uh, when he actually sees Varys the jailer. Um, that's a great example of that. I mean, when he, when when Varys comes in, he didn't even recognize him at first until you know he started speaking until Varys started speaking to him. But using those skills, like the way he dresses and all that, you know how, how obsequious he is. He. Uh, and using his superb information ga uh, gathering, he just he makes himself just necessary for any person in power to have him. Like, how could you be the king and not want to keep Varys around? Yeah, I mean, he's the perfect spy. Yeah, he makes himself so youthful and he looks so unthreatening. I mean, it, it would be very hard just to kill him or just to send him away. I mean, yeah, I... I, I I could easily imagine Robert coming into power and, see, and seeing meeting Varys, or he'd seen him before. And he's like, "I can't, I, I can't get rid of you. I know you served the guy before me, but uh, you have some great skills." <laughs> and uh, but then he also serves people like you know Cersei and Tyrion drop there, and you know they're pretty dangerous people. And sometimes Varys is forced to divulge a secret that he'd probably want to keep to himself if he could. I mean, maybe most secrets he'd want to keep to himself. But <laughs> sometimes he has to keep them to, because other people will figure them out pretty quickly, maybe. Maybe it's only a month from now, but they'll figure it out and they'll know that Varys knew and did not tell them about it. So, you know, like, if they learned that, like Tywin, when Tywin was, uh, was in King's Landing, he killed Varys because Varys kept secrets from the king. And he would know, and, and mm -hmm. he mentioned Varys is an expert at character judgment, so he's going to know which people he has leeway with and which yeah. ones he doesn't. Ned so, and Cat, you know? Yeah, he Say knew, whatever. He knew he could manipulate those two a little, but with someone like Tywin, he's got to be straightforward, or, or, or he's yeah. on the line he's walking. And, uh, and yeah, we actually learned that, that Varys was brought in by the Mad King, King Ares, Um. And because of the timing, I guess, um, certain people, you know, powerful people actually, you know, throughout the realm, actually blame uh, some of Ares' paranoia on that fact that, you know, Varys brought him in, you know, and helped him become that paranoid by giving him, feeding him those information, 
Some of it probably even false information. Some of it deliberately delivered to make him paranoid. Ned, it should be noted, he actually he's the, he is actually the member of the small council that Ned trusts the least, and that uh, he actually makes Ned just creeped out, skin crawling, just feeling almost dirty around him. I mean, I, George did a great job of making Varys come across as a really creepy guy, um, especially from Ned's perspective. Yeah, I mean, Ned and Varys are like kind of like polar opposites the way they work, and, and so it kind of makes sense that Ned would have his skin crawled by Varys, and that's a clever way for Var our, 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 as a reader to have our judgment you know, colored by what Ned thinks, and of course Catelyn before, because th at this point, those are the only two people we've really seen his point of view from. Eventually we see him from Tyrion's point of view, and that changes things, but I think it's ironic that Ned thinks of Varys as the council he trusts least, because actually, as it turns out, Varys is the one that is the most useful to him, the one that helps him the most. Perhaps you could say he's the one whose interests align with Ned's the most. Uh, I'm not saying that Varys was helping Ned because he liked him, but it's just the way things worked out. For example, he tries to keep Robert alive. We're going to get into some more detail on how he tries to keep Robert alive, but there's several examples of how he tries to keep Robert alive, which is something that Ned certainly wanted as well. He tries to help Sansa. He, he, you know, he worries about her, but maybe not worries is not the right word, but he shows Ned that he's concerned for her, and that's essentially the same thing. Um, and he even tries to keep Ned alive. He doesn't want Ned to die. He doesn't want uh, the Lannisters to kill him. He, he wants to, although Ned keeps making very foolish political moves, Varys tries to help him along and, and give him some hints. So, I, it's, it's kind of ironic. I like that, how it works out, that Ned is, is against the guy that, he trusts Littlefinger and doesn't trust Varys. Matt didn't right. <laughs> Matt's going, Ned. He doesn't try to trust Jano Slint and all these other people. Oh. <laughs> Oops. Yeah. yeah it, it should be quite noted that, um, you know, Everything we learn about Varys and, and build our opinion on is actually filtered through two specific point of views in Book One. For the entirety of Book One, we only get to see his you know, see Varys through Ned's point of view and Cat's. The next point of view we actually get isn't until Book Two from Tyrion, and that's you know much much further along in the story. So. I think I think, yeah, they're much more out of it. Tyrion has actual real conversations <laughs> with him. Tyrion actually knows what's happening in the conversations that they're having, where Ned is just like, flying over his head constantly, and you're like, <laughs> Ned, come on, get it off! Yeah. Um, it should also <laughs> be quick that we do actually see a little of Varys through Sancha's point of view, but she doesn't have a lot of direct... Yeah, until later. He's in the room, and they're talking. But still... Yeah. He's kind of in the same mindset as these others, uh, not like Tyrion, more like Ned and Cat, where they're just like this guy. Well, I mean, and, and to be honest, Sansa's kind of like, I mean, as far as the, the Game of Thrones, uh, Sansa's more second tier of a player, whereas, like, you know, Ned and Cat, you know, they're, they're more primary. primary. So, yeah. Uh, and it, it, it's, it's so funny that, you know, you know, that how Varys actually just hates sorcery and those who practice it. At least that's what he claims. And we actually got that information from one of the early conversations he has with Tyrion in book two. Yeah, we, we find out that Varys became a eunuch after he was sold as a, as a slave. He had been a child working in a mummer's troop and sold as a slave and his manhood is cut off by a man who uses it in a ritual. 
Yeah, this ritual allows the sorcerer to speak to a, a mysterious being with a terrible voice. Very ominous and creepy. Um, the mm-hmm. voice, uh, ominous, creepy voice, still gives Varys nightmares. He says anything we say about Varys, I think you should just repeat yourself. He says because we don't, you know, you can't completely trust him on anything he says. One thing I want to interject real quick, though. The reason we give it more credibility, perhaps, the reason we take it as truth, is partly because of Tyrion's react noting of how Varys' posture and his voice mm-hmm. changed when he's telling the story. It's almost like it really is. A, a real memory. Mm-hmm. And Varys is an expert actor, yeah. so let's not take that too far. Varys is completely capable of, of, of fooling us there, mm-hmm. but it does it does have a lot of it feels genuine for a lot of reasons. Yeah, I feel like the, most of it is genuine, but I do feel like he could be changing some specific details about his ba- about his past and you know what not not mentioning certain parts of it, etc. Uh, but he uh, he still gives these nightmares about this voice and. The memories of the voice are worse than memories of the pain, even. But maybe that's because during it, he was uh, he was uh, drugged by a substance that paralyzed him, but did nothing to dull his nerves. So of course, he still felt the pain. <sighs> and so maybe the the voice and the you know the, the effect of that is more than like something that he couldn't even control. I mean, imagine that, right? Like he uh, says that it's horrible. He says that this voice is worse than being paralyzed to the point where you can't move. He can still feel his own. You know, manhood being cut off, yeah. and the voice is worse. Wow! Yeah. <laughs> he's, obviously, he's obviously suffering from a post-traumatic stress syndrome. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then the man that, that cut him suggested to Varys he should die, and Varys, despite him apparently, decided to live. He worked as a thief and a prostitute, which. Uh, you know, he say, I'm still my body, but he says he sold, you know, he sold other parts of him he had left, is what he says. And uh. he's really successful at this, uh, you know, prostitution, ooh. Yeah. <laughs> you know, maybe he's, he's very successful in particular. This game just crawled. Yeah, he rose so high that eventually his talents were such that even the mad King Ares had heard him. And that's a story I'd like to hear. Um... <laughs> You know, this is yeah. a non-spoiler episode, so I'm not going to give away whether we do eventually hear that or not. Uh-huh. But that it, it always stuck out to me then. It's something like, well, how exactly did a king across the sea hear about this guy's talents? Uh-huh. You almost think that Varys did something yeah. to get noticed He's rather than... sent some people there to start whispering things. Yeah. Spread the rumors. Of- Stanza heist. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, uh... So once, once Varys came to the Red Keep, he, he apparently learned a lot. Of, as we know, he knows all these secret passages and tunnels, and he knows all the secrets of the Red Keep. And well, the Red Keep was built by Megor the Cruel, that's Aegon the Conqueror's son. Um, and Megor the Cruel, as, as any person would want, wanted secret passages and hidden doors, and you know, he wanted all these secret things that a castle should have. I mean, I would I would want a castle, it. I would want yeah, all that. Yeah, all right. <laughs> Uh, but then Megor executed anyone that had a hand in building these secret features, so, you know, that kind of sucks for him. Yeah. And, secret. But, somehow, Varys learned them. He knows the, the Red Keep really well. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's, you know, one would be tempted to consider the possibility that maybe Varys somehow acquired a map. Um, but I think it's probably something more like, you know, 
something that he's learned, you know, which gives him skills to figure out certain these secrets. I mean, he's been living there for a very long time, you know, probably you know, at least 20 years. So he's had time to figure out and explore and learn these things. He could have his little birds run around doing like little survey missions, push this rock, look for trap doors, you know, exploring the tunnels and stuff. It's, it would be very interesting to find out how he did learn all that stuff. I doubt we're going to get that, though, to be honest. Yeah, hopefully we learn one day. But, yeah, we may, that may be one we were left hanging on. <laughs> so let's talk about that's a good. I think it's a good primer on Varus and Lyra, who they are as people, and maybe what makes them tick a bit. Um, but let's talk about what they're actually doing. Let's get into the plots. Mm. Right on. So they start off, you see, of course, the initial scene with Khal Drogo and Danny and Viserys. Um, the marriage is a big deal. It's, of course, a, a major Dothraki, probably the greatest, at the time, the greatest Dothraki call, marrying uh, the blood of old Valyria. This is a big deal. It's a huge wedding. Probably a lot of people are going to hear about it. It, it. Certainly, the Iron Throne heard about it. Yeah. Um, and so all over the three cities, people are going to be hearing about this, and that's going to you know, cause a bit of a stir. Um, we're not sure how some people are going to react to it, but certainly it's going to be noticed. Um, and this is where we see a lot more of Illyrio's wealth and the display of the dragon eggs, giving these three dragon eggs. We're, we're told several places that these are just unbelievably valuable. Yeah. Yeah, this display of wealth is, uh, it's, I think, it's, you know, it's obviously intended to strengthen, you know, his personal relation with Drogo. Um, Illyrio claims that they're from the Shadowlands, and uh, that's kind of important because of the fact that the Shadowlands are so far away. I mean, they're really distant. I mean, this is like Columbus selling to the New World kind of distant. Yeah. I mean, they're like all the way across Essos. I mean, if you look at the, the new maps you just released, we just barely got a glimpse of where the Shadowlands even really are when these maps were released. So it's a pretty big deal. That if he's claiming they're from the Shadowlands, I mean, even the Dothraki don't really go into the Shadowlands. I mean, it's that yeah. far out. Yeah, they don't, they don't like it. So, so it raises an interesting question, the eggs. Is Illyrio really this wealthy that he can give these away? Uh, which is entirely possible. Or perhaps he didn't actually buy them. Maybe he got them some other way. For example, maybe Boris acquired them in the Red Keep somehow. Maybe some eggs survived the Summerhall tragedy. Which, if you don't recall what that is, uh, we'll describe it real quick. Summerhall tragedy was when uh, Aegon the Fifth tried to hatch his clutch of dragons, and it resulted in his death, the death of his lord, Lord Commander the Kingsguard, his son, his wife. And we're not we told what happened to the eggs. We assume they're destroyed too, but maybe they survived. Who knows? The, 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 his nickname was Egg. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. So the important point, though, from that is that maybe the eggs were acquired through means other than purchase. So perhaps it's not quite as extravagant as it seems. Mm. By the way, there's no reason to suspect Illyrio and Varus knew these eggs would have. That's something that bears mentioning. I don't think there's any reason for them to know that. that would, that's just too far out in, in wild theory territory for us here. So. <laughs> Uh, Illyrio did get, you know, a fortune himself, uh, not dragon egg fortune, but he acquired a fortune in horses and slaves for his part in arranging the marriage from the cow. So, you know, he, he, he didn't end up completely bereft of anything there. Yeah, he, he profited. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it should be noted that, uh, you know, various, you know, 
at the meeting that they were discussing Danny's, you know, assassination, you know, the one that Ned was objecting to, very, very publicly and openly, he was saying, "Yeah, I support this. You know, we should kill her, kill the little little dragon, and whatnot." But then off to the side, you know, doing the background when he was having Sir Jorah work for him, he was telling Sir Jorah exactly how they're going to do it, knowing that he was going that he would actually step in and stop the assassination attempt. Yeah, this is interesting because if you remember, Viserys uh, talks about how there are all these hired knives sent on sent on their trail by Robert, and how Illyrio had protected them. And well, in that scene, we find out that Robert hadn't sent any to them, that he, he hadn't <laughs> sent them any hired knives. He hadn't tried to kill them. This is the first one. So you know, Illyrio played that up and made, made Viserys parano paranoid and. And you know, willing to trust Illyrio, be the protector, and all that and makes Illyrio seem like a really good guy. But <laughs> <laughs> very yeah. yeah, we talk we, we talk a lot about this in uh, it happens mostly in Clash of Kings, um, even though it's not really shown in the show. Um, but after Viserys' death and of course the hatching of the dragons, Illyrio and Varys obviously start, you know, backing her instead. Um, and this is obviously something we're going to touch on more in the spoiler episode because it still could easily be brought up by the writers of the show. Yeah, there's, some, there's a little bit of a disconnect. For anyone who's watched the show and read the book, you know that some of the things that happen at the end of Clash of Kings haven't been shown in the show yet, whereas some things that haven't happened in the books yet have happened in the show. And a couple yeah. of those things are pretty important details. So we're considering those spoilers, even though they happened in Clash of Kings, but they haven't happened on the show yet. So just in case you're curious... We're not skipping those topics. We're just moving into our spoiler episode. <laughs> Another aspect of Varys's modus operandi is disruption. Uh, it's crucial that we talked about it earlier that he, he wants to cause instability in the realm. Now, he doesn't want too much instability yet because large instability is kind of something that gets out of control, and they need it to be timed better. So in the meantime, Varys yeah. is just kind of working all the angles, and the thing that he's most trying to do is he's trying to prevent uh, too open war breaking out too early, and he's trying to prevent the realm from being stable. For, let's, let's look about some examples. Varys actually pushes Ned to discover the incest. Despite the fact that he tells Illyrio that this is a problem, that Ned is discovering the truth of the bastardy, he actually decides to help Ned because he knows Ned is going to figure out the truth eventually anyway. Yeah, so, this is obviously the incest between Jamie and Cersei. Right. So he, he, he wants to control the situation uh, so he has more control over the outcome. He knows it's inevitable that Ned will discover the truth. He just wants to do some damage control and doesn't want it to result in the realm tearing itself apart. So, uh, well, he actually does want the realm tearing itself apart, to be clear, but not yet. He needs it to be later. Um... So, it's also possible that Varys miscalculated the timing a little bit. We, we know Varys is amazing, but he's not perfect. It would be a little unrealistic for Varys yeah. to not make any of his points. He can't um, control everybody. Right. So, uh, one thing that's interesting about that, once again, this is the same conversation that Arya overhears with Illyrio. We keep coming back to it because it's so important. Illyrio is the one to point out that things are happening too soon because... Or, sorry, Varys points out things are happening too soon. Illyrio says... Can you go fast? Can we slow things down? And Varys says, no, we need to speed things up. And Lyrio says, we can't speed things up necessarily. What we're waiting on is for Khal Drogo to have a son. 
And we know that Danny's pregnant at this point, but yeah. is she going to have a son? We don't know. So it's a really it's a big time question that they can't answer until she has she gives birth. So yeah, and that's a that's a pretty important aspect of the of the whole plan. Right, and that's a very unpredictable aspect. Like, how can they possibly predict when Khal Drogo is going to have a son? I mean, they can predict that Dan they know Danny's pregnant, but that's still only a coin flip as to whether it's a boy or a girl. It's going to be a child. But yeah, it's going to be a son, daughter, stillborn, or any. Yeah, it doesn't. Yeah, there's a lot of possibilities. Like the, the child could be a boy and then die in the crib, and then they'd have to wait for a whole other cycle. Yeah. So this could be potentially, from Virus Miller's uh, perspective, there the plan to have Khal Drogo come and invade could be years away. So. The fact that Ned and Cersei are about to get to be each other's throat is it's too early for them. They think they don't want that. Yeah. Another example is with the situation with uh, Sir Gregor when Tywin unleashes Sir Gregor on the Tully lands in response to Tyrion being seized. Well, this is actually really interesting, uh, and it's more interesting because Ned is injured. When Ned, if Ned isn't injured, we all know he's going to go serve justice personally. That's the way he is. But because his leg is hurt, he has to assign someone else the job. And a job like this has all kinds of political ramifications because it's going to war, basically going to war against Tywin Lannister. That's huge. Big so, deal. So Varys says, uh, so Varys makes a few suggestions. Yeah, he, he suggests that Dolores, he sends Dolores instead of Beric. Because a man who has the Lannisters as his enemies would do well to make the Tyrells his friends, which makes perfect sense to me. I'm, I'm above that. I've done that. Yeah, isn't that kind of obvious in retrospect? Like, yeah. He immediately sends Loras after Sir Gregor. They fight. And all of a sudden, the Tyrells and the Lannisters are, you know, they yeah, hate each he, other. If, if, if Gregor yeah. wins or dies, the Tyrells are firmly on the Starks. So. Yeah, who, if either of them die or neither of them die, yeah. or both. Like, it, it works out great for, for Varys, particularly. And it should work. It works out well for Ned, too, but Ned chooses not to see it that way. <laughs> Yeah, and, it, and it, just, to, just to remind the, the viewers, you know, who haven't read the books, Solaris is the pretty guy that was hanging out with, uh, with Renly. Uh, <laughs> in very special ways. Hanging out naked. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, Solaris was the pretty guy. And, and was almost killed by uh, uh, Sir Gregor yeah, uh, during the melee. Re, uh, interesting rematch there. <laughs> yeah, that would be a very interesting rematch altogether. Uh, so when that suggestion was not taken, um, what he did instead was suggest Sir Ellen Payne. The problem is, as Ned pointed out, that Sir Ellen, Sir Ellen is a Payne, and a Payne, they're bannermen to Lord Tywin. So, yeah, you can't really, you know, send him to do the job to kill another, you know, bannerman, basically. I can almost picture Varys, like, inwardly rolling his eyes at that response, because yeah. yeah, that's the point. Yeah. Yes, the pains are bannermen to the Tywin. So you, basically, you either out pain as someone you can't trust, or you get him on your side, and that pulls strength away from Lord Tywin. So once again, it's yeah. a very straightforward political game for Ned that he just... Yeah. <laughs> unfortunately, like, unfortunately, Ned can always be... And Ned unfortunately, Ned can only see what's in front of him, and he reacts to, you know, the box square in front of him. He's like a horse with blinders. He's so <laughs> righteous <laughs> and dedicated. I mean, don't get me wrong, he's a great guy, but you got to learn to adjust. 
This touches on what I was saying before about how Varys was actually more scared of what Ned would do than anyone else. Even though the other guys are ostensibly more dangerous and have maybe have more power, it's Ned that he's worried about because Ned's the guy that he can't manipulate. <laughs> Ned's just gonna plod through this this like he's walking through a minefield. And Varys is like, "Hey, there's a mine. Don't step on it." And Ned's like, "That's not a mine." <laughs> so. But so obviously this failed. Virus's attempts to control the situation, despite the obvious positive ramifications for Ned, completely went over his head. So I, I got to think that maybe what, besides what Virus had in mind with Sir Ilan, was that he would fail. You know, like I said, he would fail, and, and that would work to, to to Ned's benefit, or or it would buy time. If Sir Ilan balks at going out and uh, killing, you know, killing one of his own co-bannermen to the Lannisters. Maybe Robert comes back from his hunt and is like, no, we're not doing this. Because that's what happened before when they were about ready to fight each other. Robert just demanded that they be at peace. When Ned and, you know, referring to when Ned and Jamie fought in the street. And Jamie and Ned was like, I'm not letting this, this rest. He killed my men. And, Ned, and yeah. Robert's like, you're letting it rest. <laughs> that's the end of yeah. it. You two go to your corner. Go to your rooms and play nice. That's basically it. So, Varus might have just been trying to buy time to get Robert to come back and be like, you guys are not, because I mean, this is what Ned has done. He's, he's sort of almost started a war. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, yeah, and so, when, you know, obviously in the show, when Robert comes back from his hunt, he's gravely wounded, you know, after the war and all that stuff. And, you know, we learned about, you know, there was a possible, uh, uh, plot against him, you know, with the Lancel giving him all this wine. And, uh, but Varys actually is trying to keep Robert alive for at least a little while. Um, he does want this crisis of succession to come, but it's, again, as we were discussing earlier, it's coming too quickly. Um, so Varys is, you know, kind of helping Ned, you know, nudging along, saying, okay, look, Cersei actually tried to go Robert into going into the, the melee, the, the tournament. And Varys also, he, he's also the one who actually started Ned down on, you know, hey, let's focus on Sir Hugh. And that's when Ned sends Jordy to go speak with him. If you remember in the show, Sir Hugh was the one that was actually counting paces as a, before the tournament, trying to figure out, okay, can't you see I'm busy? I'm a sir now, you know. And a lot of questions came up as to how quickly he became a knight. <laughs> now, it's important to point out why, uh, to, to reinforce why Varys wants to keep Robert alive. He does, we point this out a couple times, but maybe we haven't fully explained why. It's because Varys has completely, completely incorrectly predicted what will happen when Robert dies. It will become chaos. There are yeah. people who know the secret of Joffrey's birth, and there are other factions who are trying to scheme for power. He knows the Tyrells will be in the mix. He knows that Stannis will be in the mix. He knows, he knows the perhaps, Martells are out there. He knows the Martells are out there. So he knows that as long as Robert is alive, things are going to be at least somewhat stable. Robert is as terrible as a king he is. He's actually better for stability in the short term than than being him dying. Which is he's the lesser of two evils. Right. Yeah, the lesser of two evils. So, uh, and also the better for his. his Plans. So, so we can talk a couple examples of Varus's patterns of how he manipulates people. He, he's really good, and, and when you really dig deep and look at how he talks to people, you can see that he uses their own personalities against them. He really knows which buttons to push. For example, with Ned, yeah, he touches on Ned's 
love of family and honor a lot. He needs to when he wants to convince him of something, he just brings up issues of honor and family. Yeah, Ned is perfectly willing to die and to falsely admit to treason. And then Varys just kind of vaguely threatens Sansa, and he says there's going to be a lot of danger. And Ned does a complete 180 and decides that he'll admit to the treason and he'll do the unthinkable. And it's nah. worth it. Where was that? <laughs> and, and Ned also sometimes struggles to realize how cunning other people are. He doesn't. It's like he doesn't. Dishonorable things don't occur to him. He's like, well, he wouldn't do that. That's dishonorable. And something you can see the the collective eye rolls again. If you look like <laughs> Zonable <laughs> to a fault. Yeah. So he sometimes like, sometimes like he tries to point something out to Ned without pointing it out to him. He's like he tries to get Ned to think about it on his own. Yeah, like Lance Lannister was Robert's wine bearer. Yeah, hint, hint. Yeah, hint, hint. Hello. <laughs> you see that scene in the show when Barrison and Ned he brings that up. He's such a dutiful young squire to make sure his grace did not lack refreshment. And Land and Barrison and Ned kind of look at each other like, oh. <laughs> and the rest of us are like. Yeah. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> so, uh, some more examples of, of discord and manipulation and, and false rumors, things that Boris does. It's very clever. There's all these. There's lots of these examples. And during my during our research for this, we, we just realized just how endless they are. Next one is my favorite. <laughs> yeah, this this is a really good one here. We've got during the uh, account small council session, Boris mentions some rumors that he's heard from abroad. One of them is that quote a three headed dragon has been born in Karth. And is the wonder of the <laughs> a three-headed dragon? That's obviously Danny and her dragons. But and Varus knows who they are. He knows the truth. But he he he's just trying to spin it as some fanciful tale. This allows yeah. this gives him plausible deniability later. He's like you like how did you not know about these dragons and the things? Like I did. I remember. I pointed out three-headed. Dragon. The truth wasn't that it was a three-headed dragon. It was a three different dragons. It was <laughs> close enough. But so he can say, look, it was close enough to the truth. And look how far Karth is away. Of course, my information from Karth, which is. Thousands and thousands and thousands of miles away. I mean, you can't, like, you can't ex expect Absolutely. information that travel that far to be completely accurate. I love that, though. The wonder of the city. Yeah. Um, another example, which is a little more confusing to me, a little more subtle, and maybe not as clear as to the motives behind it, is sending Gendry to the wall. Uh, of course, Gendry is one of Robert's bastards. Yeah. We know that the other bastards were slaughtered, and... Varys, at times, he has this, this streak of altruism, apparently. Maybe not. There's, there's, uh, there's a lot of reasons to think the altruism is an act. But he does seem to occasionally say things that make it makes one think that he's actually kind of gentler to children. Yeah, but then he uses child <laughs> slaves who die at the end, so... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know, he cares about some, some of them. So maybe know? he's a hypocrite, I don't know. <laughs> you think you care about some kids and... Uh, <laughs> Or maybe he's just trying to make up for the fact that he's cruel to some children by being gentle to the others. Maybe it's like, like this one class. doesn't have to die. Right. These ones need to be my little birds. This one, uh, I'm going to send him off and he, you know, causes chaos. But, on the other hand, if we're going to be a little more cunning or think about it on a lower level, maybe Varus is just trying to distract Cersei. It's just another way to enhance her paranoia. It's say, hey, there's another bastard of Roberts that's out there because we know that she tried to kill them off. So yeah. if one of them gets away, she's gonna be that's gonna bother her, and she's devoting resources and time to, to hunting this guy down. And sending him to the wall is a pretty good way to get him far from her, <laughs> yet still have it known where he is. So exactly. maybe, maybe Cersei could screw up by like trying to murder someone at the wall, and that would just cause all kinds of problems for her yeah. if she got caught doing that. You know. Um, 
So, but another aspect, a very important aspect, is something we've been talking about a lot, is the instability, is to prevent alliances from occurring. This is huge. Yeah, and a perfect example of that is uh, he doesn't want Robert, he doesn't want the Baratheons to actually ally with the Tyrells just yet. He, at all, actually. Um, he even points out that the Tyrells were scheming to try to get Robert to set Cersei aside and replace her with Marjorie, which she obviously didn't want to happen at all. Um, the Tyrells were allied with the Targaryens, and he didn't want them allied with the Baratheons so that they would actually support Viserys and Danny. You can kind of just picture his support, the, the possible people that would support Danny and Viserys. Of all the people that might support Danny and Viserys, the Tyrells were like yeah. top of the list in both likelihood and in the amount of strength they could offer. So this would yeah. be a catastrophe if the Tyrells married the Baratheons. Yeah. And, yeah. and then, I mean, besides preventing alliances and all that, he just straight up does not want anyone to ally with Stan. <laughs> yeah. Right, as we talked about a few times, he apparently hates magic, and so he, you know, Stannis has Melisandre there, and Melisandre protects Stannis as well, so Varys, like, can't reach him, and so, you know, uh, Stannis is probably out of all the contenders thrown, the one that Varys, like, not probably, definitely the one he has to worry about, but Stannis would just auto-execute Varys. Yeah. He wouldn't care about yeah, how good he is. He's, he's even worse with blinders. His blinders are tighter than Ned's. <laughs> His blinders are tighter. He is. He he sees things better, but he is yeah. more focused. Yes, I agree. Yeah. Um, Stannis is like like she like she alluded to. Stannis is also kind of isolated. He's on Dragonstone, which is an island he can control. He has some mo like m almost total control over ships going in and out. There's always possibility that someone could sneak out on a you know, smuggle their way out on a <laughs> ship, a la Davos or something yeah. like that. But um, so the, the Vars' normal ability to spy on people with his little birds and to keep tabs on people is limited because of Stannis' isolation, both and the fact that he has Melisandre around. So Stannis to him is quite frightening. I think Vars is legitimately afraid of Stannis and really wants to make sure that he doesn't yeah. come out on top. And yeah. he's the bottom of the list. Now, yeah, even though he's the hottest contender. Something else I alluded to. Is the way he the, earlier that is, is the way he likes to speak to people. We can analyze how Varys manipulates people specifically. Uh, we talked a bit about how he handled Ned with some of the manipulations, and how he tried to kind of show Ned the truth without being too blatant about what he was showing him. Yeah, uh, with like we mostly we're going to talk about obviously the first two books before we see him. So I mean, with the Starks, in the first book he tries to dazzle them and show them his worth. He also seems he also tries to seem weak and subservient. You know, he's just a lowly eunuch, master of whispers, doesn't even have, you know, any any business down there. Yeah, and, and, and with Tyrion, he's still quite differential, but uh, but much less so, because he actually kind of, in a way, subtly threatens Tyrion, but he does respect him more or less as an equal. Um, maybe even at times a confidant. But he does suddenly threaten Tyrion to try to gain respect from his point of view and perhaps even get him as an ally. Yeah, he wants Tyrion to respect him, whereas with Ned and, and Catelyn, he knows that's not possible. <laughs> <laughs> so he's, he's got a different tactic with them. Yeah. Um, another way to put that, though, is that he actually recognizes Tyrion as a true player of the game and Ned and Cat as, as just people who think other people think are players, but really they're just pawns. Or maybe they're not, maybe not pawns so much as uncontrollable forces that, yeah. uh, you know, kind of go their own way and 
<laughs> is less uh -huh. ability to, to deal with them in, in some ways, and more in others. Um, so there, there's there's some other examples that of Varus knowing things. Yeah, he, uh, there's tons of examples of Varus knowing, uh, having advanced knowledge of things coming. You know, uh, unfortunately, um, he had no idea about Ned's execution. Um, at least that's the way it's portrayed in the books, uh, as well as the TV show. He yeah, had no like, idea that was coming. He's like <laughs> waving his arms, he's <laughs> frantic. He's like, "Don't do this!" It's you know, it seems I'll not only does that of unflappable Varys just all of a sudden he's like, "No, no, <laughs> don't do that." It's show. It's true because yeah. not only does it, you don't have to believe that his arm waving was sincere just because you all got to do is, is is have listened to this you know the past hour and a half of this show to realize that that Varus, everything Varus is doing relies on this not happening well not everything but this is a very bad thing for Varus. Varus can't have Ned being executed he knows that immediately that means Rob Stark is going to war yeah. and and that's it's too soon he doesn't want that to happen he wants that to happen later so we don't even have to wonder is Varus really doing it is his is that an act because we know it's not. We know that his. We know enough about. We don't obviously know his full motivation, but we know enough about him to know that this is very bad for him. Okay. Yeah, and as we were discussing earlier, I mean, we're back to that scene where Arya overheard the discussion between Illyria and Varys, and I hope we nailed down by this time with all these examples as to how important that scene was to the overall story arc. Um, as Arya had actually overheard, one of the main things they were waiting on was to give Danny, Paul Drogo, a son. And that was a, that's the key. That is the key. So uh, as we were discussed earlier, you know, we don't know what can happen. There's so many variables. You know, it could be a daughter. It could be born, stillborn. It could die at birth. It could die as a young child. Um, and, you know, this son has to become at least of a certain age, and then they could provoke Paul Drogo or perhaps even the son into launching their assault on the West Roast. So everything is moving too fast for their opinion. The 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 quarrel between the Starks and the Lannisters and you know the possibility of the Tyrells coming in. So yeah, this is big deal, very big deal in the overall story arc. So things are not quite going hundred percent Varus's way. Yeah. Something to note there is that I'm at as all this is going on, as you can see Varys, you know, he's very in control of situations for the most part. There's one situation, one person that he doesn't have no control over it. And I'm sure you can guess that's Littlefinger. Varys says that Littlefinger is the second most devious man in the Seven Kingdoms. And I, I mean it's pretty obvious who he's referring to as first. <laughs> I mean, whatever he lacks, he, he does not lack uh, you know, he does not lack lack confidence in himself. Uh Barry seems to genuinely have no idea what Peter's up to, and he tells this to Illyrio. And what? Well, and while well, maybe maybe Littlefinger's uh, seems uh, he seems hard to, hard to read at times. Uh, we there is like we still can tell kind of what Littlefinger wants. Littlefinger seems to be working for personal gain and and advancement, and he wants to have you know power and be respected, and you can just kind of, you know, uh, Varys does not seem to be working towards that. I mean, what does he have to work for, really? Uh, he, 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 even his quarters are, you know, very Spartan, as we said, and he's not, like, trying to get really rich and, like, have a beautiful palace of his own. He's not, in fact, not going to have a family. <laughs> <Nope>. <laughs> Littlefinger clearly has some goals there, so, I mean, 
I, I feel like Varys maybe should know a little bit more about what Littlefinger is up to, but uh, maybe maybe Varys just feels like, yeah, obviously Littlefinger wants personal gain, but he clearly wants something else there, and Varys has no idea what that thing is. Yeah, uh, one thing to note is, uh, does Varys even know where Tyrek, uh, uh, Cersei's little cousin, known as Wet Nurse, where where did he go? I mean, it's kind of strange that his body would just suddenly disappear. And it's hard not to think of Varys being involved in this. And it seems like, you know, that maybe Tyrek knew some things. Um, but he disappears during the riot in A Clash of Kings. Yeah. It's a very subtle thing that has happened that's kind of... It's really easy to miss it or to not have any reason to think about it. But, yeah. Where is he? Of course, yeah. You know, he's like Steve said. Uh, you know, when someone goes missing and you wonder where he's at, yeah, you gotta. Wonder. Later on, a character muses about it a little bit, and that's what brings it to your attention. Because maybe you wouldn't even notice, like you know, Tyrek Lannister went missing during riot. All sorts of people miss get go missing during riots, but yeah. you know, curious there, and uh, uh, you know, probably, possibly that you know he uh, he hasn't, you know, has Tyrek has knowledge over, you know, he that was that was Robert Weinberry, and he has knowledge over it. Varys secrets him out and uses him, and he has them like, I have proof that the Lannisters did, you know, kill Robert. There you right. go. Right. That's an important factor. Uh, we know that Lancel was the one who buried the poison wine, but Robert actually had two uh, Lannister squires, and this was the other one, Tyrant. So, yeah. you know, what happened to him? Uh, okay, well, let's get into our closing thoughts. We have, uh, you know, about 20, 30 minutes left, and we want to kind of approach this from a macro sense and, and kind of rehash what we've learned and put it into a larger perspective. Something we've been, we've been wanting to do for some other topics too, but we have two hours here to do everything, to cover yeah. macro calls and micro view. It's very hard, but yeah. we've been talking about maybe, you know, after we do these micro view episodes, then we do like a broad view of Westeros and stuff like that after we have the, you know, the, the, the building blocks set. Right, we're, we're basically... Uh, constantly evolving as a podcast, the way we do our formatting, and this is something that we're trying to work on more, is our is to have a stronger finish. So, yeah. speak. so, I like to think of Varys and Illyria as sort of the hidden faction, even though they're apparently supporting the Targaryens. There's clearly more to it than that, so can we just honestly say that they are Targaryen loyalists? No, I don't think so. But they, they're currently backing the Targaryens. To what end? Uh, probably more will be discussed in the later books, but this is a non-spoiler episode, so for now... We don't know. But one interesting aspect of it, just from um, a very high-level point of view, the other houses are all kind of fighting out in the open. you got the Tyrells, uh, the Starks, the Lannisters, the Greyjoys, everybody there. Th these conflicts are all well-known. They're, they're all out in the open. This whole behind-the-scenes stuff with Varys and Illyrio is a totally different game. We're talking about a whole faction as a player in Westeros that most of the players don't realize is even there. Like, they know they've heard of Daenerys, but she's out there. But they have no idea all these machinations behind the scenes that are being that are, that are happening to bring Daenerys and this Khalasan to Westeros. So they just don't have the idea. So that's pretty, uh, pretty clever, I think, and pretty interesting. Yeah, you kind of have to wonder. I mean, yeah, I, I agree. There, there's some, like, a hidden faction. I like to call them the small, small council. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, really, I mean, you know, that's the real question is, what are they really after? I mean, they, they, they seem to be Targaryen loyalists. 
Um, it's quite obvious Barry doesn't really seem to be out for himself. As you said earlier, you know, his personal quarters are really sparse. You know, he has almost nothing in it. Um, he obviously has no known family and obviously no way to create one. But, uh, yeah, it brings up a lot of questions as to what, you know, what is their end game in the end? Yeah, and that's something we just can't answer right now, but whether you think they're supporting the Targaryens above all, or they just want personal gain, or so chaos, but uh, there's, you know, these two are just serious players no matter what. I mean, there's there's no other way about it. Like, no matter what they're trying to do there, they're pulling the strings that throw most of Westeros. Like... Yeah, I mean they're bringing they're they're gonna they're they're scheming to bring the wrath of Cal of Khal Drogo to Westeros like something that they haven't seen yeah. since like the Andal invasion so like that would be the closest thing I think the Andals coming in and just like just just destroying stuff and killing people that would, uh, they're trying to basically do that again well, yeah with the tracking a hundred talking about possibly bringing a hundred thousand savages warlike savages into Westeros it's a well, massive army I mean. Yeah. This is huge. I mean, this is these are two guys doing this. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's just yeah, it's just yeah. ridiculous. They're bringing the Mongolians. Well, completely. Uh, but yeah, so Varys and Illyrio are even bigger players than than Tywin, and certainly certainly Stannis. But even Tywin Lannister, I think, you could say. I mean, they're pretty. They're, they like, they affect the game, and they affect the game in different ways. But they're every bit as big a player, I think. Yeah. yeah. They're a different piece on the board, but that piece has a relatively similar strength. Yeah, yeah I agree. Uh, the, the best thing to do, I think, is to consider, I love this quote, uh, the riddle that Varys offers, offers to Tyrion with regards to the nature of power. And, and I love the fact that they put it in the show. Um, yes. Yeah, in the book, it happened like in an inn, but uh, I believe in the show it happened in the Red Keep. But anyways, yeah. it's when Varys presents the riddle, in a room sit three great men, a king, a priest, and a rich man with his gold. And between them stands a sellsword, a little man of common birth and no great mind. Each of the great ones bid them, bid him to slay the other two. Do it, says the king, for I am your lawful ruler. Do it, says the priest, for I command you in the name of the gods. Do it, says the rich man, and all this gold shall be yours. So tell me. Who lives and who dies? The riddle itself is a riddle because the answer is not important. It's, it's almost a thought exercise. It's almost, it's, it's, it's sort of a setup. It's the, the value in the question is how the person being given the question answers it. The way you answer that riddle determines, you know, the kind of person you are or the way you think. And that's, the, that's what's crucial here. What matters yeah. is not the sellsword. You have to know the sellsword's mind to know who he's going to do. You have to know what he values in order to know what he's going to do. That's what's important. You can't predict it yourself necessarily. So it's, it's what, what matters is knowing how you react to the riddle and knowing how you believe the self would react to the riddle, how the, how the person being asked the riddle guesses at the sellsword or what he would do. Yeah, it's almost like a test of loyalties. So mm -hmm. uh, to go on, um, Varius is quote saying, some say knowledge is power. Some tell us that all power comes from the gods. Others say it derives from law. Yet, that day on the steps of Baylor Sept, our godly high septon and the lawful queen regent, and your ever so knowledgeable servant, 
They're as powerless as any cobbler or cooper in the crowd. Who truly killed Edard Stark, do you think? Joffrey, who gave the command? Serlin Payne, who swung the sword? Perhaps another. Another meaning the person who gave Joffrey the idea, perhaps convincing him of it somehow. Finish it off with, here then. Power resides where men believe it resides. No more and no less. And Tyrion responds with, so power is a mummer's trick? A shadow on the wall, Varys murmured. Yet shadows can kill. And if power is mummer's trick, then who could have more power than Varys? Alright, folks. There we go. <laughs> I think we should just end it right there. Yeah, we should. Yeah, just cut it off there. Cut it right off there. The nice, awesome. very, the great cadence. <laughs> uh, great episode. Yeah, a lot, a lot of great detail in there. For all you guys watching here on YouTube, um, as you can tell, this is typically our raw, unedited feed that we use here that we strip the audio from and use the podcast that's up on iTunes and on Facebook. Feel free to leave us a comment if you do want us to start editing this video. At the moment, we don't think it's strictly necessary. You know, it's kind of nice to see you guys see our mess-ups and our random uh, discussions <laughs> and stuff like that, so that's fine. But if you really want if you want to see the, the edited version, you can just download the audio podcast. Or you can, like I said, leave us a comment. Leave us a comment anyways. And uh, tell yeah. us so. And tell us if you have any subjects you want us to talk about or discuss. Um, we'll Our definitely you know, take that into consideration. We have a poll going on right now on our Facebook page where you can suggest how, you can suggest subjects or you know you can vote on one that's already there. We're going to put up a new one uh, pretty soon, actually, probably after this. We're going to do a new one because the old one has some topics that we've covered. Right, already. and of course our next actual next episode will be the spoiler component to this yes. episode where we get deeper into Vars and Lirio and the plot yeah. that we learn about the next three books and uh, all of our... Wonderful analysis. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, once again, thank you for watching and uh, listening. And uh, like I said, if you have any comments, concerns, you know, you want to complain about us, you want to comment, uh, compliment us, by all means do so. You know, we love feedback. So, yeah, feel free to leave a comment of any kind, whether on the Facebook page or on uh, the YouTube page and uh, or on the iTunes feed. And Twitter, yes, and Twitter, of course, yes. All of us, when you do that, Aziz typically is tweeting, and YouTube is mostly Steve's, and then I, and then we have Facebook right there, which is I, I'm doing posting there, and we had a Reddit thread going on recently, which got us a few new listeners and viewers, mostly viewers, but yeah. So, you know, you can talk to us anywhere, and you know, who, who knows who you're actually talking to, but feel free to, uh, yeah, whichever site is your favorite, whatever. <laughs> So yeah, there we go. Um, that's the end of this episode. Thank you again for listening or watching. And I'm Steve from Italian here in Los Angeles. Peace and a chair out here in Atlanta. Off. And that's it. <laughs>